the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to Rob Black on the Money Channel. Now, here's Rob. Welcome in to Rob Black and Your Money, the podcast, talking all things financial. First and foremost, thanks for listening to the show. I do appreciate it. Get into things a little bit late today because I uh, had some other projects that I had to get to. But I'm going to get you some good content. Recently, we saw some news out about the housing session, the housing market. And what I want to talk about there is I want to kind of show you what's inside the data. In particular, starts, housing starts bottomed following the end of the home buyer tax credit in June. But there's been somewhat of a steady increase in construction activity ever since then. It's nice to see. The underlying demand for new homes remained dormant, though. Eventually, as construction has continued, builders are starting to run into problems with high inventory levels that can only be fixed by slashing new starts. Or another twist, which probably you're not really expecting. So housing starts were weaker than expected. Building permits were stronger than expected. And one of the things that home builders and consumers, well, home builders can do is that they can slow down finishing the home and thus not put it into inventory. I'll talk about that because it's kind of a funny thought. Home builders and consumers have been playing a very dangerous game of chicken, and it's starting to come to fruition. Builders ramped up production, especially in single-family homes. Sales demand has steadily but slowly risen from post-tax credit lows. Both sides could not ultimately continue moving at their current pace without inventory problems starting to cause some sort of price disruption. So builders are going to have to decide if it's in their best interest or not to continue building at the heightened levels for current demand. Or whether they're going to cut back to levels not seen since uh, probably about October two thousand eight, uh, October two thousand nine. So single family construction, it's it's the most stable sector. It fell about nine percent in December to four hundred seventeen thousand homes. That's the lowest level of new family single start since May two thousand nine. Now, what's interesting to note about this is demand's there. It's steady, like I said. Builders are stretching out completion times if sales is weakened because they don't want to tell the government or anyone else that. And the house is done. We need to start paying taxes on it. This keeps inventory levels artificially low. And at the same time, it keeps the completion data at a relatively high level for the number of housing starts. Now, regardless of how home builders attempt to manage their inventories, they could either cut production or stretch completion times. The bottom line is the demand for housing is weak. And it, it's just it's dragging in generally into the economy. Now, how does housing play into the economy? This is a great question. Housing, a lot of people... First and foremost, the economy's done a good job healing itself. And corporations have restructured over the last decade to the point that, you know, they were ready for the nuclear winter that came in the recession that we got in 2008. They operated and they still had very positive cash flow throughout the recession. Corporate America is in great shape, in my opinion, in great shape for the future. Demand's not strong right now coming out of a recession. Housing's about 3% of our economy and autos are about 3% of our economy. And autos have already started to turn and go positive. They're on the upswing. Housing's corrected 25% roughly from the top, probably has another 5% downside. For the most of the rough stuff is behind us. I can't tell you that I'm wildly positive and crazy bullish on the stock market. I could say 
relatively, you know, it's, it's not that bad. Now, there's been some news out there, SEC chairman. I thought he said something kind of interesting, talking about Steve Jobs and how the board's handling very properly the the exit of Steve Jobs, but they really haven't done a good job of coming up with a successor. And I feel confident that Apple's got a great management team, and I feel comfortable with their product line for the next year, uh, six months particularly on the stock before I change my opinion on the company. Short term, I would love a buyback. Uh, I'd love a buyback. I'd love for them to announce something to do with their cash. Uh, No, actually, I wouldn't love a buyback at these levels. What am I saying? Let me strike that. Short term, I would love for them to continue to execute. I would love for them to uh, uh, continue to roll out new product. So identify new management uh, when it it becomes clear and easy to do. Stocks did try to rally today. It wasn't in the cards, ultimately. Um, Stiff selling effort. Very stiff selling effort, and that's a funny line to use, all things considered. Uh, we were up seven days in a row. We've been up since August, and again, I'm not really seeing a panic issue on my end. Hopefully, you're not seeing a panic issue on your end as to um, what the market's currently doing. Dow was down about two, NASDAQ down 21, and the S&P 500 down one. Google co-founder Page is going to be CEO in a shakeup, which is kind of interesting this came out today after the market closed. Google co-founder Larry Page has taken over as CEO, an unexpected shakeup that has upstaged the internet search leader's fourth quarter earnings. Uh, let's see how that, that possibly is playing out at this point in time. Um, page 37 has reclaimed the top spot from Eric Schmidt, who had been brought on as CEO a decade ago. It's interesting to know because Google's investors thought they needed a more mature leader. Schmidt? is a great CEO. He's going to remain as an advisor to Page. The changes are going to go in effect April 4th. And Schmidt said, I'm, I'm, in my opinion, Larry's ready to lead, and I'm excited about working with both him and Sergey for a long time. Page praised Schmidt, saying there's no other CEO in the world that could have kept such headstrong founders so deeply involved and still run the businesses so brilliantly. Interesting. The changes... Change in commands overshadowed Google's fourth quarter earnings, which soared past expectations. Google earned about $2.5 billion during the final three months. I didn't see this one coming. Revenue climbed about 26%. Shares rose about 1% in after market. I want to see where they are now. Give me just a second. Always interesting on Wall Street, isn't it? So, something that shocked me today, but I'll get into that a little later. Uh, Google's up 12 bucks, about 2% in aftermarket performance. I'm going to find some more news on this for sure, uh, so don't go anywhere as far as uh, uh, CEO issues go. So it's kind of interesting watching Wall Street's reaction to Google, and again, like I said, I'll get more information as the days come. Probably tomorrow is going to be a little bit more appropriate. Just saw a couple things. Boeing cut 900 jobs. Earlier today, I saw another shipping company, a defense aerospace company down in L.A. cut another 900 jobs, and every time I see something like that, this is in particular to California. I think about home prices. I think about mortgages. I think about people falling behind. The jobs, I, I think, ultimately find themselves elsewhere, but maybe not in that area. It's interesting. That's the way I think. Um, so anyway, what an odd day. The tech-rich NASDAQ down 1.4%. The SP 500 was lower. The NASDAQ was down a skosh. It was really the NASDAQ that pulled the markets down. There were some efforts today motivated by worries that China might have to tighten monetary policy to tighten inflation and contain inflation. That's a good problem to have. So I'm not all that freaked out by that. eBay was one of the strong performers today. It was up roughly 6% at one point in time. Strong guidance, better than expected earnings. 
I can't get behind the eBay. Freeport McMoran tumbled. They reported better than expected results. It was caught up in a push against basic materials, which collectively pushed everything lower. I like eBay. I, I like Freeport McMoran um, as a play on commodities, as a play on growth. So some regional banks did well today. Fifth Third Bank Corp, FITB, uh, was down less than the market. So the financial sector was better than expected. PNC Financial lagged following strong results of their own. I don't mind companies having great results and then going down. I don't. Uh, Morgan Stanley was a standout today. Um, they had an upside earnings surprise. So financials did pretty good as far as things go today. Let's see what else can I throw out there at you today. AMD tonight beat earnings by three cents a share. They see their first quarter revenue flat to slightly down. They moved up slightly in aftermarket news on this. This is a company that's looking for a new CEO. There's a lot of talk that they may be acquired down the road, that they're really a $10 stock, even though they're roughly about eight. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it's always tough um, to push a company like that. Now, again, quarter to quarter, they see flat, which Intel doesn't. So that's your comparison right there, right? But quarter to quarter, their consensus was for down about 5.4%. So uh, they got some server revenue, some server chips coming out that look pretty attractive. Uh, so keep an eye on AMD tomorrow. Earnings season's been pretty nice so far. And again, it's being met with selling. Like I saw Union Pacific, Parker Hannafin, eBay, Morgan Stanley, Freeport, McMoran, Copper. Um, have just great numbers, all things considered. Um, on top of it, third, Fifth Third Bank Corp, Morgan Stanley, PNC Financial. There was a lot of really good numbers. And this morning... Unemployment claims dropped 404,000. Again, a good number. Any number under 450 is good. Under 400 is great. We're not great, but that's a pretty good number. Um, so employment's not picking up. Well, the private sector's picking up. But we're also cutting how, how quickly we're, we're letting uh, the economy jobs go. So I like what I'm seeing there. I still predict that Apple's going to come out with an all-in-one TV by late 2012. I think you're going to see a lot of uh, announcements in the next three months on services like cloud-hosted music services. Norfolk Southern saw their target upgraded to $76 from $70 today over at a company called Longbow. I bring up Norfolk Southern because their earnings were fantastic. Incredibly boring, but fantastic. Ticker symbol is NSC. Uh, residential housing permits, they've stabilized, and there's an ETF called XHB, XHB, and it's the home builders. And this is probably one of my favorite, like, sexy sectors for 2011. And one of my top picks is going to be Lennar, ticker symbol L-E-N for the year. D.R. Horton is good. Toll Brothers is nice. They're all planning for 10% growth in 2011. And again, it gets back to some of that housing construction numbers that I've talked about. But ultimately, I think the construction side of the fence is going to be a surprise growth for 2011. I still think a lot of states are not being realistic as far as cuts. I think that's going to be something that's going to be humbling in 2011. I think the private sector will more than make up for it, but states and government subsidies, uh, they have to be looked at, and projects that are being funded have to be looked at. So that's going to be one of the big stories that comes out in 2011, more cuts on the public side, not the private side. Regulated utilities are introducing their budgets right about now, and what we're seeing is expenditures are robust. They're spending millions and billions of dollars. They're introducing... Capital budgets that face the conundrum of budgeting for, you know, regulations on the Environmental Protection Agency. 
So there's a positive bias for utilities in the face that they're going to be able to charge more because they're trying to meet EPA targets, in my opinion. Now, again, you could say, Rob, I think you're crazy, but there's some companies like Southern uh, Company, ticker symbol SO, uh, $40 stock, in my opinion. Uh, SCG, which uh, is another name in the industry, target was raised to $44 a share. SCG is a South Carolina utility, which I think ultimately can be acquired, which makes it even more slightly attractive. Um, I like the dividend on both Southern and SCG. Ticker symbol FE, First Energy, $44 stock. ETR, also known as Intergy, ticker symbol ETR, price target about $84.85. So again, these aren't stocks for everyone. These are incredibly boring, and those are stocks that have nice dividends. Not a lot of growth, but a lot of nice dividends. Um, some of them have some pretty good growth, like Energy more so than SCG, um, South Carolina Gas and Electric. But again, South Carolina Gas and Electric has that potential to be acquired. So it's really tough for me to say, go out and buy these. I'm just throwing out ideas and utilities. Some of them have a little bit of growth. Some of them have nice dividends. They're not appropriate for everyone. Interesting story out there today. I continue to pay attention to the price of oil. Oil's telling me um, at $90 a barrel, it's a little bit weaker. Oil fell after new U.S. jobless claims did drop to 404000 uh, that's a bit of a surprise. I would have thought oil would have had a bit of a stronger reaction. So I can't say for definitive on my opinion there. That's a phrase that I want to start getting used to and get people comfortable with. I can't say for definitive. Uh, do I think financials are going to have a good year? Yes, I do. Uh, I wouldn't bet my retirement completely on it, but I'd wait it for sure. I wouldn't overweight it if it's going to cause you stress. Do I like companies like Union Pacific? Absolutely. You know, they reported income of $775 million versus last year's $549 million. Uh, revenues were up 17%. They're telling us that, you know, business volume is measured by carloads were up 9%. And that's a sign of a slowly strengthening economy and something that I think the transports continue to play into. I don't know. I hope I'm helping you on this podcast because I'm not trying to ever confuse you. Don't forget you can call my show, and I need you to call my show, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the show. So during the campaign for November 2010, there was a lot of heated debate about how to solve the current deficit problems. And we're hearing some, some rumble on this. Congress debates the merits of spending cuts. Congress debates the merits of tax hikes. The real question is, is the current deficit sustainable? That's for a lot of people who are freaked out. So it does, to me, look to be an immediate problem. Financial instability occurs when the cost of paying the interest on the debt overtakes income growth. Ultimately, in essence, what this means, the debtor hopes that asset inflation will be enough to pay off the debt. If asset prices do not grow fast enough or decline, then the debtor, in this case, the United States, has no ability to repay the debt and loses losses ensue. If losses are systemic, the entire financial system can fall apart. So using this principle, the current U.S. deficit's not as in bad shape as rhetoric insists. Let me explain a little bit about this. The federal deficit, or the federal debt as a percentage of GDP, it's moved past 90%, well, well past normal post-war levels. 
from 1960 to 2000, we basically it went from about 45% down to 20%, up to 60%, back down to 58 And now we're spiking. But our interest payments, interestingly, haven't. So our interest payments climbed along with the debt as a percentage of GDP. There's no doubt about it. Our interest payments climbed from 1960 to 2000. But from 2000 to 2010, they've declined. At the current level, interest payments only account for about 1.7% of GDP. At their height in 2000, they're about 3.5% of GDP. So other than during the immediate refinancing wave that began the Great Recession, this is the lowest since fourth quarter 1979. Now, in order to abide by what's called the Minsky Principle and prevent a debt crisis, incomes need to grow by at least the same rate as the interest payments. Now, given the recent pickup in the economic activity, and you combine that with low cost of servicing the debt, there's no reason to believe the deficit will cause problems in the foreseeable futures. There's no reason to think of strategic bank defaults, which is one of the interesting stories of 2010. It's the idea that strategic mortgage, uh, de- mortgage defaults tied towards the housing market would be something that we would do as a nation. Now, let's talk about, I think I've hit the government debt income interest. We have no problem financing our debt right now. And honestly, as a percentage of GDP, it's it's back to 1960 levels. That makes me feel very comfortable. Now, the strategic default on a house is something that I hear about from callers on a fairly regular basis during the radio show. Clearly, it's upsetting to even think about that people would consider that. Essentially, a homeowner that has the means to meet his or her mortgage obligation chooses not to because they got negative equity. The thought that the benefit of a lower monthly payment for a rental unit, coupled with the fact that the owner does not have to wait for a rebound in prices, that may never happen, it outweighs the negative hit to their credit rating. Now, indeed, a lot of stories in media have noted people have reduced their monthly payments by simply moving to rentals in their current building or neighborhood. So a lot of people are reducing their monthly payments. So um, oftentimes we talk about renting versus owning, renting versus owning. In this case, we're talking about giving up on an ownership and going back to renting, and they're they're saving a lot of cash flow. Now, that's easy enough um, as long as you live in a state with no recourse. With any other mortgage default, the bank forecloses, finds a new buyer, takes a loss, and then the new buyer gets a deal. So you're looking for non-recourse loans if you're going to do that. There's a recent article in the Chicago Tribune which noted that there are almost 2,000 red-flagged houses in Chicago's which are dwellings from which the mortgage servicer has walked away because the cost of assuming responsibility for the property is greater than the potential upside. So it's interesting that the strategic default's still in the story. It's not a new development. It does have the potential to become a little bit more widespread, and it's something we have to watch in the housing sector. Now, the housing trend is, of course, it's not good. I think we lose another 5 to 10% in value. Right now, there's 918,000 homes being repossessed. Uh, in the year 2009 and over a million in 2010. For 2011, people are predicting about 1.2 million. So these red flag homes of will they or won't they have owners moving to rentals, it could create another hurdle on the home uh, ownership in the home housing market. Again, housing is important to the U.S. economy, not critical. It's it's important. It's It's... Part of our GDP for sure, but it's not critical. To me, this just creates another potential drag. Not a, not a definitive, but a potential drag.
So I've tried to give it a little bit of time to see if I could find out a little bit more on this Google. And what I can tell you from some disclosures back on December 9th, Eric Schmidt, CEO of Google, adopted a stock trading plan in accordance with guidelines under Rules 10b-5-1. In the future, he's going to begin selling a portion of his Google stock pursuant to the trading plan. The prearranged trading plan was adopted in order to allow Eric Schmidt to sell a portion of his Google stock as part of his long-term strategy for individual asset diversification liquidity. He holds roughly 9.2 million shares of Class A and Class B stock, which represents about 2.9% of all of the stock. It represents about 9.6% of the voting power. Now, under terms of the plan, Eric intends to sell 534,000 shares of common A stock. If Eric completes all the proposed sales on the trading plan, he would continue to own about 8.7 million shares. So it's allowing him to diversify, and it's getting flagged for me because a month later he's out of the company or he's leaving the company. He's talking about leaving the company. So earnings, taking a look at them, were stunning. 66 cents better than expected. Revenues rose 28.6%. They earned $8.75 a share. Paid clicks increased 18% year over year, 11% quarter to quarter. Cost per click increased about 5% year over year, 4% quarter to quarter. Uh, Google announced management changes. Starting April 4th, Larry Page, Google co-founder, is going to take charge of the day-to-day operations. Sergey Brin, who is Google co-founder, is going to devote his energy to strategic projects, in particular working on new products. Eric Schmidt's going to assume the role of executive chairman, focusing externally on deals, partnerships, customers, and broader business relationships, government outreach, and technology through leadership, all of which are increasingly important given Google's global reach. Internally, he's going to continue to act as an advisor. So it's, it's a shakeup more than an ouster. And it may even be more strategic than the initial headline feels. Try to find any other information that makes sense to me to give to you at this point in time on this one. I'm not seeing it. I want to throw out another idea or two while I can. Again, I've got a bitch of a cold going on right now, so I don't want to overdo it today. China. Since bottoming in March 2009, the S&P 500 has surged 97% on a total return basis. Versus the Shanghai, which has risen 32% if you were to create similar dollar terms. In 2010, the total return of the S&P 500 was 14.8% versus a 10% loss in the Shanghai. So, so far in 2011, the S&P 500 is up roughly 3%. The Shanghai is down 2%. So there's some deepening wrinkles in the complexion of China. In particular, inflation and their monetary policy and how it's being tightened to curtail growth. The United States, for its part, is seeing low inflation rates, which should ensure that monetary policy is going to remain extremely accommodative for some time to come and create corporate profitability, 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 right? So the United States is eventually going to have to contend with a tighter monetary and fiscal policy, and that's probably when, when China becomes a little bit more attractive, per se. Right now, the easy money's still on the United States. Uh, we've got plenty of appeal. So, and uh, down the road... You're going to want a little bit more China, China, China. But with a weak economic policy in the United States, I got no problem saying overweight the United States, North America. Um, That may go counterintuitive to some of the things that I say about 401ks. I'm talking really super short term right now, three to six months per se. Let's talk nuclear. This is something that comes up on the radio show on a regular basis. People want to talk about nuclear ETFs. Um, They're showing some signs of life, in large part thanks to some big moves that could mark a turning point for the industry. 
Members of a state house committee in Minnesota approved a bill last week that would lift a 17-year-old ban on new nuclear power plants. Now, if the bill passes, it hasn't, it will widen the options power companies have to bring energy to the public, although building new power plants would still be costly. It could stabilize energy rates, according to some of the data. Now, again, nuclear fusion down the road may become a viable way of producing energy thanks to efforts of a few researchers. The process of fusing two atomic nuclei together requires a massive amount of energy. If the process of creating nuclear fusion efficiently becomes a reality, it could hurdle ETFs like PowerShares, Global Nuclear, ticker symbol PKN, Market Vectors Nuclear Energy, ticker symbol NLR, and iShares S&P Global Nuclear, ticker symbol NUCL, right in the front of the big time. Now again, it's a lot of interest. It's not a lot of profitability right now. There's a new play on uranium called URA, Global X Uranium. It's up nearly 10% in the last week or two. Now, that does say that it's right. It doesn't say that it's a trend. It's saying that nuclear's suddenly popped up on my roadmap. It's for you to decide on how you want to play it, not for me to tell you how to do it. Anyway, I think that's about all the time I have for today. Thanks for listening to the show. Um, one interesting note, I'm going to end with a little Florence the Machine. And what's wild about this is it's, it's headed by a, a girl named Florence Welch. And a collaboration of other artists who provide backing music equals the machine. She was an art college dropout in London. She was discovered singing Motown covers in a nightclub toilet, drunk out of her mind. For some reason, I love that story. Um, drunk out of your mind in a toilet singing Motown. That's living. Take care. Have a good day. Talk to you soon.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.